invite you at this time to uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3, Pew Bible page 1847. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Where we find our scripture reading for this evening, 1 Timothy Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. Here now the reading of God's holy word. Here is a trustworthy saying, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, the grass withers, the flower fades, the word of the Lord stands forever. Now, if you've been on the internet at all, um, one of the things you might have seen this week on the internet was this video going around of this preacher from Tennessee who was going on about how a demon had revealed to him that there were witches in his church. And in the service, he was threatening to point out who these witches were and where they lived and what their names were. Reverend Greg Locke began telling his church about his conversations with demons. Those demons, he said, revealed the names of a group of full-blown spell-casting witches who had been sent to infiltrate his church, Global Vision. And he said, to God be the glory, I lie not. We got first and last names of six witches that are in our church And you know what's strange? Three of you are in this room right now. Now, besides the fact that we might think something like this is is quite bizarre, uh, besides the fact that we wouldn't really want to deny the reality of the demonic or the occult, um, in fact, because of the proliferation of recording and live streaming sermons, you could go online and find a number of wacky clips of preachers, pastors, all kinds of stuff out there, right? But the question we have to ask ourselves is, how can we criticize this man, um, and how can we determine whether he should hold the position of pastor at all? Maybe we just think it's weird. Maybe we just think it's bizarre. Maybe we just think it's strange. Uh, but, But can we really say anything objective about it? This guy docks and witches from the pulpit. Besides the fact that maybe if demons are talking to your pastor, you probably shouldn't go to that church. (laughs) 
We do so by going to the Word. We do so by going to the authoritative text that tells us exactly what qualifies or disqualifies somebody for that kind of position. And if you know anything about this man, Greg Locke, you will find that uh, this Global Vision Church is not the first church he's pastored. He got popular some time ago on Facebook from doing these rants, and then come to find out, we discover that he's leaving his wife that he's had kids with for the secretary of his previous church. And they go off and start this new church. And that kind of stuff happens all the time. And we realize that we're so thankful that we have the Word of God that gives us such direct and such detailed information about what qualifies or disqualifies somebody for a position of leadership in the church. So that we can actually look at somebody like that and say, that man is disqualified for the ministry. He's not just weird. He's not just bizarre. He's not just talking to demons. He's disqualified because the Word of God says so. So, our theme tonight. In Christ, live a life. Worthy of the calling you have received. In Christ, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And we've got three or four points tonight. His commitment. Verse 1. His character. Verse 2 to 3. Third point, his competence. Verse 4 to 5. Number 4, his conversion. Verse 6 to 7. Okay? His commitment... Somebody already noticed, and they were wondering if I was going to notice. His character, his competence, his conversion. So, let's look at these points together. His commitment. Once again, I want to remind you that the sermon series that we're doing are the five faithful sayings that Paul mentions in his pastoral letters. Uh, First and Second Timothy and Titus. Paul says this thing. This is a trustworthy saying. This is a trustworthy saying. And as we established last time we talked about this, that when he says this is a trustworthy saying, a faithful saying, right? Uh, What he's saying is that this is something that is uh, already a standard within the church. This is something that is um, quote-unquote known. Um, This is something that is confessed throughout the church. This is something... That is widespread, right? And what's so interesting about uh, these trustworthy sayings is the last one 
was about the gospel. The last one was about um, uh, the trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance is Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And it seems kind of strange that Paul then would shift gears so much so that what he's saying now is the next trustworthy saying that I want you to know, the next trustworthy saying is that if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, being a, uh, someone who watches over, right? That's the word, of, that's the name of this word, episkopos. And someone who is overwatching. He desires a noble task. A noble task. See, many of the times when we have these um, conversations in the council, when we're trying to come up with names to ask to fill these positions, we start looking right away at those qualifications, right? Whether someone is temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, all these things, right? And I always, I always stop everybody and I say, wait, 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 wait. The first requirement, the first quality that we should be looking for in somebody, right, is they have a desire, a commitment, a conviction, right? They have a desire, if anyone sets his heart, a desires to be an overseer, he desires a noble task. Uh, so the first requirement of somebody who serves in the position of an elder is that they should want to do it. I mean, that's the first requirement, right? Or at least they're open to the Lord working on their heart to get them to want to do it. So this is a commitment, and this is a trustworthy saying. So you want to know what Paul is saying here? Paul is saying throughout all the churches, throughout all the churches that he has established, throughout all the churches in the, in the known world, the first century world, Paul is saying that it is a good thing for men in those churches to desire the position and the role of an overseer. That is a good thing. That the role of elder or overseer is not to be one that people shrug their shoulders at or every three years when it comes around, everyone starts holding their breath because they realize that they might get asked, their, their name might come up. That's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying that the person who sets their heart, the man who sets his heart on being an overseer desires a noble task. This is something that is to be honored. This is something that is noble. In fact, when Peter discusses this reality in his letters, he says something pretty profound about elders. He says, Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, eager to serve, not lording it over those Entrusted to you, but being an example to the flock. Verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. That in a sense, Paul is saying the trustworthy saying that I want all the churches to know is that when you are raising men in your church, when you're raising sons in your church, when you gather around the dinner table, you should not be saying the best profession that you should desire and go after is to be a doctor, is to be a firefighter, is to be a 
Fill in the blank, right? Now, one of the things that we should be talking about as we raise sons is that you should desire to grow up one day and be an elder in the church, to mature as a Christian. That's something you should aspire to. And sometimes when I think about this trustworthy saying, it challenges me. Because I often don't know if we have a culture, an environment that encourages that kind of desire to grow up in the Lord. A desire to grow up in character, right? But this is what Paul says. Is a trustworthy saying that if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. We should commend people for having that commitment, that desire, that aspiration. But he moves on to the next thing, and that is his character. Uh, Not only should this man, and maybe many of you are wondering why is it that I'm Limiting this to men earlier in Paul's letter, in, in his instructions on worship in First Timothy chapter two, he makes it very clear that men are the one who are supposed men are the ones that are supposed to hold these positions of leadership in the church. He says, "A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent, for Adam was formed first. Then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. So, Paul's giving instructions to Timothy on how he should order and design the church, has already said men are the ones who are meant to be in positions of authority, men are the ones who are meant to be in these positions. And so, it makes sense that the next thing that he goes to is to describe what kind of men, right? Just because you're a man does not mean you're qualified to be in the position of an overseer. You're not chosen just because you're a man. You're a certain kind of man, right? And this is a passage that I continue to wrestle wrestle with because I'm up here preaching it, and I, I, I sort of feel like I'm putting the magnifying glass on myself because you're probably looking at me saying, well, Carrie, do you? meet all these requirements, right? Or maybe you're looking at some of the other elders and be like, well, that's kind of what this is like, right? So let's just, let's, let's all give each other grace and we'll get through this together, all right? So his character, the next couple verses, two and three, Paul gives a list of these sort of qualities or characteristics that you should look for in a person. Uh, the overseer must be above reproach. Above reproach. Now, it's my conviction that because Paul mentions this here at the beginning and then also at the end, verse 7, he must also have good reputation with outsiders, that this is sort of the um, overarching quality or characteristic that Paul is saying that that elders should have. And that is that um, they have a good reputation. They have no way uh, for people to drag them into controversy. There's no way for people to um, uh, accuse them and bring an accusation against them, right? It doesn't mean they're perfect. They're, they're, they're welcome to be a sinner, and they're welcome to tell people, you know, I still sin, I still struggle with sin, um, but they're not going to be an article in the tabloid, right? They're not going to be um, 
like Greg Locke, who, who has <laughs> clips all over the internet talking about how silly he is for the fact that he's yelling about witches in his church when he left his for, first wife and their kid and his kids. You see what I'm saying? That, that's, what, that's what is being said here. Above reproach um, means that uh, an elder should be somebody um, who, um, who, who, who has got a good reputation with outsiders. Um, the next thing that is said is the husband of but one wife. Uh, the actual Greek here is one woman man. He needs to be a one woman man. Um, now, I don't think this is about polygamy um, because I don't think that was a common practice um, at this point. Um, I don't think this is about um, uh, necessarily about divorce. Um, many people have read this particular passage, the husband of but one man, or the, excuse me, the husband of but one wife. Um, yeah, that would be the wrong way to say it, right, Josh? <laughs> God forgive me for that, okay? Uh, must be above reproach. The husband of but one wife is not, I don't think this is about divorce, saying if, the, if a man was divorced, uh, that means he's automatically disqualified from being in this position. I don't believe that because I think there's biblical warrant for, for divorce in certain circumstances. Now, I think on a case-by-case basis, you can look at somebody who's been divorced and say, does that mean that this person is above reproach? Does that mean that this person um, should be in this role? This man should be in this role? Um, but I don't think it means that, well, because he had a wife before and now he has a second wife, that he's not the husband of but one wife anymore. What it's saying is that if you're going to be an elder and you're an elder that's married, then you should be devoted to your wife. You should be somebody who is in pursuit of your wife. You should be somebody who is not um, uh, in the regular use of, of uh, pornography and prostitution and things like this. You should be somebody who is devoted to your wife. Another question. Does this mean the husband of but one wife means that people who are not married are disqualified from the role of being an elder? No. This has also been the way that's been interpreted in the past. Paul is not saying that because if Paul were saying that, Paul would be disqualifying himself from that role. It makes no sense, right? What Paul is saying is if the man is married, he should be a one-woman man, right? He should be a one-woman man, um, Temperate, self-control. These are all, I think, in a very similar vein, these characteristics, these qualities, right? Self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. So temperate and self-controlled means that it, uh, this is a man who has uh, some sense of control over his emotions, over his ability to express himself, right? Um, I've been reading a, a book about um, biblical masculinity that's been very helpful for me in, in thinking about a lot of these things. Um, one of the ways that I think about um, men who are temperate and self-controlled is not that they are um, quote-unquote weak, as in uh, they don't express any gravitas or they don't have any conviction with the things that they say. Rather, uh, masculinity is sort of like, um, it's, a, it's a sort of rage, it's a sort of anger, but it's a managed, it's a controlled. And, and the way that I would express this is, if you grew up with a dad 
who could give you the look. Right? He doesn't need to say anything. He doesn't need to um, raise his voice. He just gives you the look. Right? That's a man who's tempered and self-controlled. He could rage out. He could scream and yell, right? And this is something that I'm working on myself as a parent, right? Um, one of the funniest things that happens at our house, well, it's not funny, but um, our kids will start getting really loud, and, and one of my, my kids will start running around yelling and screaming, and then I'll say, stop yelling and screaming! How do you get somebody to stop yelling and screaming if you're yelling at them and screaming at them to stop yelling and screaming? So I'm trying to work on being temperate and self-controlled, which is, it, it, it's not a lack of emotion. It's ability to rein those emotions in and channel them in a way that's productive, effective in leadership, Right? Uh, temperate and self-controlled, respectable and hospitable. How, how important it is for people to respect their leaders? How important is it for people to know that their leaders are welcoming and open to them, right? That they're approachable, um, that they're inviting, right? How important is, there, is that in a leader? Uh, able to teach. This is something that I think we continue uh, to, to need to develop, Right? Oftentimes, what we see in, in our circles, and I'll just be honest with you, is that we have this role called pastor, and we view pastor as the one who does all the teaching and all the preaching, and then the elders, they don't really feel like they need to be able to teach. Well, that's because a lot of times what we think of as teaching is standing up here behind a pulpit and doing sort of this lecture-style teaching, right? But some of the best teaching that happens is with a Bible open, one person Two people talking across the table with some coffee just about the scriptures. Just talking about it, right? That's teaching too. So don't feel like when Paul says able to teach, he means you have to be able to give a 45-minute sermon or a 30-minute sermon or a lecture like, like I'm doing, right? Um, that's not what uh, he's saying. What he's saying is that you need to be able to understand the biblical worldview, understand the scriptures, and you need to be able to communicate that in a way that's effective. That's what he's saying, and that can happen in a number of different settings, right? Um, but a, a, an elder, someone who sees over people, needs to be able to teach, needs to be able to uh, um, um, communicate the truths of God's scripture. Uh, in verse 3, he says, not given to drunkenness, right? Now, I, I read a number of commentaries, and I watched a number of sermons of people giving, uh, talking through this, this list of qualities, right? And I was thankful to see that uh, the, 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 um, the culture is shifting in such a way that um, what is being talked about when we talk about not giving to drunkenness is not um, abstinence. So in the past, it was often that this meant that, a that an elder or a pastor or whatever abstains from drinking entirely, right? Um, that's not what Paul is saying. He's saying Paul says not given to drunkenness. The scriptures never condemn drinking alcohol. They, they condemn drinking alcohol in excess to the point of drunkenness, to the point of uh, losing your inhibitions and losing your, your control, right? Now, there's uh, a, an, 
as sort of a, uh, an explanation that could be given for wisdom in the sense that you should be wise about the way that you drink or who you drink around, somebody who might be a weaker brother. Um, and a lot of times people give the wisdom argument and they say, well, Paul says you can drink, but you should just not be given to drunkenness. But my advice is to just abstain from drinking entirely because um, that's just the easiest way to avoid that. And uh, I would think that that actually falls into what uh, R.C. Sproul calls the tyranny of the weaker brother. And that is there is a sense in which we can give up our freedoms and our, um, our, our, um, uh, what we're allowed to do in the Lord be, uh, for the sake of our brother, right? But we can also have our brother demand that we do that for their sake. And I don't think that's appropriate either. And so I would just say what the scripture is teaching here about overseers and elders is that they're people that are not given to drunkenness, okay? This makes sense because if you're above reproach or you're somebody who has a good, addict or a good, um, rep- uh, a good reputation with outsiders, uh, most likely you're not one of those people if you're given to drunkenness. You've probably um, been found at the bar, passed out somewhere or, or something, right? Um, you have somebody here who is able to appreciate God's blessings and proportion and, um, and, and all things uh, with, uh, with balance and, and give God thanks for them and is not given to excess, right? Um, he's not quarrelsome. He's not argumentative. He's not always seeking a fight. And he's not a lover of money. It's important that whoever's in a position of leadership would not be somebody who is desiring to gain financially by that position of leadership, right? And that's why this is so important because a lot of times in churches what we'll do is if we see somebody who's successful in the world, right? They're a lawyer. They're somebody who owns a business. They're, they're somebody who is successful in the real world. They're successful in the business realm. We think that that means that they should, they should be a good elder, right? Because they're successful in the real world, but it's not what we should be doing. What we should be doing is seeing somebody who has the character that the role of elder requires. And if there are things that we need to teach them to do in that role, then it's much better to find somebody who has the character and to teach them the role than it is to try to find somebody who has the competence, who has all the uh, skills to do the role, but does not have the character. You see what I'm saying? And that's what Paul says. Put character first. And if you had a business, if you owned a business, I would say that's the best way to hire people too. Character over skills. Somebody you can trust. Somebody you can respect. Somebody you know who will be a hard worker and be committed to you and to the job. Teach them how to do it. Right? So that's his character. But what about his competence? All right. The next thing that Paul says has to do with his, um, the family life of a man who is uh, desiring or seeking to be in the position of an elder. Um, this is what we should look for. He must manage his own family well. Uh, so this is about household uh, management. 
Um, and these days, uh, a man who was a good manager of his household was a manager of many more things than just um, his wife and his kids. Uh, he was a manager of, uh, oftentimes, uh, servants. He was a manager of a variety of different um, uh, gardens and, and all kinds of things. What we call homesteading today, right? Um, a, a household was the, the structure that made the Roman Empire function. Um, household ethics and household structure was what made everything work, right? And so Paul here is saying that a man who is seeking to be an overseer, seeking to be uh, an episcopos, uh, somebody who is seeking to be in this role, um, should be someone who manages his own family well uh, and see that his children obey him with proper respect. Um, and, the, and the reason why Paul gives this qualification um, is it because it has to do with competence. It has to do with ability. And that is to say that if Paul understands that if a man has a family, and he has wife and he has children, but he's not, he's not capable of managing them well, uh, that their life is, uh, in a, as a household um, is um, a little bit wild, crazy, out of control, uh, lacking uh, discipline, lacking uh, uh, proper respect, lacking uh, a... a um, a sort of a, a functional role of, of, of how to, to manage things, right? And I'm thinking about this right now because we've just been through like four months of trying to get our babies grown up, that things have gotten a little crazy at our house, um, and we're just starting to get things a little bit better under control now. But he, he's saying if a man can't manage his own family well, how can he manage the family of God? How can he manage and take care of God's household if he can't manage and take care of his own household. So it's important that when you're dealing with um, looking at men who are desiring the role of overseer and elder, that you take a look at their household. Now, once again, does this mean, Paul is saying, that a man cannot be an elder if he does not have wife and children, if he does not have a household? Well, everyone has a household, Right? To whatever capacity you have a household, whether it's self-management, whether it's the management of a, of a house where you, you share with roommates, whether, whatever it may be, everyone has a household and you want to look to see if they're managing it well. You want to maybe even ask the wife, is, this, is he managing the house well? Do you, do you think that he could be managing it better? She'll probably tell you a couple ways that he could be managing it better. But you've got you to gotta ask these things. You've got to look into their lives. You can't have a surface level examination, right? You've got to do the work to see if he can manage the household of God. Uh, is he managing his own household well, um, right? Um, and in other places, um, this uh, scripture passage in Titus says that uh, his children must be faithful. And now some people have uh, looked at that to say uh, that his children must be Christians. Um, and therefore, if a man has uh, children who are not Christians, then he is disqualified from the role of an elder. Um, and I have seen people uh, place themselves outside of being even being willing to take the position of elder when requested because they have grown children who are no longer in their household who have turned away from the faith. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, what is under your management and your control? And so long as they live there and so long as they are there with you, do you manage them well? Um, and, and in Titus, when it says his children are faithful, it's the same thing that Paul is saying here when he says his children 
must obey him with proper respect. Not that they have to be Christians in the faith, pistos. Um, in that sense, Paul is using as a, a term of his children uh, honor him, respect him, obey him, right? They're faithful to him. Um, we don't know if our children are Christians, and we pray that they are. We raise them as if they are, and we pray that they grow up to, to uh, place faith in Jesus Christ. Um, but just because um, uh, our children may grow up and turn away from Christ, turn away from the things that they have been taught, does not mean that is anything on you as a parent, nor does that disqualify the man of that household um, from having that position of overseer. And then finally, his conversion. Paul spends the last bit of this passage about overseers to say that uh, it, it is wise, it is a good idea that he must not be a recent convert. Um, he must not be somebody who has recently become a Christian. Um, this does not mean that he must not be a recent uh, transfer member to your church or anything like that. It just means that he must not be a recent convert. He must not be a brand new baby Christian. Because if somebody is raised to the position of overseer, when they just became a Christian, they may become conceited. They may become prideful, arrogant. And because that is what we're told is the reason why Satan fell, because of his pride, because of his arrogance, um, we don't want that to happen as well to this recent convert. He might come under the same judgment as the devil. And so he must have a, a good reputation with outsiders that he may not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. So he shouldn't be a recent convert. He should be somebody who has a good reputation. And like I said, I think that's an inclusio with uh, above reproach. Now, I saw a lot of people uh, preach this passage, and this is basically all they did, is go through this list of qualities, right, and give an explanation for what they mean. Um, and I found that... Um, to be sort of, uh, it didn't hit right for me. Because this is what um, it made me think. Whenever somebody sees that the pastor is going to preach on 1 Timothy 3, chapter, one, or chapter 3, verse 1 through 7, this means that all he's going to be doing is talking to the men in the church, and not just the men, but only the men who are qualified to be in the position of an elder. So basically, I'm up here preaching a sermon to like three people. Right? And the rest of you all can just zone out because obviously this word doesn't apply to you. And that's why I said in the beginning that my theme statement was, in Christ, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. That's what Paul says in Ephesians, right? Uh, and, and the reason why I say that is because, as I said before, when Paul says this is a trustworthy saying, basically he's saying to all the men in the church, right, that this is something that all men in the church should aspire to. In essence, Paul is saying something that he said in another place. Follow me as I follow Christ. Because if you look at the uh, qualities here of an overseer, um, they exemplify a man of Christian character. Now you tell me, is it supposed to be that if you don't feel like you should be an overseer, that you should not strive to have Christian character? To be an upstanding person 
in the Lord, to grow in godliness and holiness? No, the reality is that we are all called in Christ to pursue maturity in the Christian life, right? And that doesn't, that doesn't change whether you're a man or a woman. And so Paul's statement here, when he says this is a trustworthy saying, everyone who desires, his, says his heart on being an overseer, desires a noble task, that's very important for us all to hear because as the body of Christ, we are meant to encourage those who are in our church in the pursuit of this role. Men, we're called to have a brotherhood that spurs one another on to this kind of quality and character and drivenness in the church. We're not supposed to sit idly by and say, I don't care if you want to live a a so-so Christian life and not grow in Christ. No, we're supposed to pray for one another. We're supposed to spur one another on, right? Women, you, especially wives, can look to your husbands and say, this is the kind of man that you're called to be. And I'm going to pray for you to grow in that way. I'm going to pray for you to pursue that kind of life. And you can look at yourself and you say, I'm supposed to grow in godliness and holiness. We've all been given a calling. It doesn't matter whether that calling is to be an elder or not. We've all been given a calling in Christ. And if you want to boil this passage down, even though it's in specifics and details about who it is who's called, who it is who's qualified to be in the position of overseer. Paul is, Paul is saying here that we should all aspire to grow in the Christian life. We should all, in Christ, desire to live a life worthy of the calling that we have received and whatever role that is. And that means that for some of us, we might then grow up and, and be able to pursue and be able to be called upon to be in the position as, of an elder. But for others, it might mean we spur the others on towards that role. For others, it might be that we desire to live a life worthy of the calling that we have received and the role as a mother, in the role as a father, in the role as a Christian, as a, in the role as a prayer warrior in the church. Whatever it is, this is Paul's calling to us all. And so I don't think that um, it's appropriate to preach 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 7, and there not be a universal application to the church because there is there is there is we're all being told that we should aspire to follow Paul as he follows Christ to follow our pastor our elders as they follow Christ to desire and aspire to the role of elder if we are men and, 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 and can be uh, placed in that position and to help one another on towards that So, my prayer is that in Christ, you would desire to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this opportunity to look at your word. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that this um, word would be a blessing to us. As we consider those who have served among us. And as we consider uh, ways in which, Lord, we can serve amongst us amongst one another. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.